Okay, we are looking at Hebrews 11, and to go back and sort of frame the 11th chapter, in the 10th chapter, he tells them that he has some concern that they will not um, stay the course with their faith, but they will pull back. And verse 35, he encourages them to not throw away their confidence, for it will be richly rewarded. And tells them, verse 36, they need to persevere, so that when you've done the will of God, you receive what He has promised. <clears throat> and just before our chapter, um, it, it's an interesting rhetoric that he uses, that uh, preachers use, at one moment, he's saying, I know everything will be great. You won't do this. You're not like this. And then the next moment, he's saying, I'm really worried about you. Things are going in the wrong direction. And the, the rhetoric kind of swings back and forth. And so uh, he urges them not to throw it away, to persevere. But in verse 39, he says, We don't belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. And so he, he ends that chapter on a very encouraging note that uh, he's confident that they're among those who will have faith, who have faith and will be saved. And then this wonderful chapter that uh, we're all very familiar with that's uh, been called a roll call of faith and a, a variety of uh, terms used to characterize it where he goes through and a little beyond the Old Testament, some here uh, in the, the verses that go from about verse 32 to 38. There's some question as to whether he may actually be talking about some of the Maccabees or something like that as we get into the latter part of those verses. But he goes mostly through the Old Testament and ends with verse 39 these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Since God planned something better for us, that only together with us would they be made perfect. And then into chapter 12, which should be the end of chapter 11, he says he treats all of these people that live by faith as a surrounding cloud of witnesses they're up in the stands, and we're down running a race. Let us throw off everything that hinders us and, and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out before us. And uh, Jesus is in the front of the race and showing us the direction, fixing our eyes on Jesus. So we have all of this cloud of witnesses around us and our eyes fixed on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning his shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So that, that's the frame from uh, chapter 10 and chapter 12 in which chapter 11 sits. And uh, we have in this series been going uh, through these individuals and talking about how they lived by faith. And we come tonight to 
In the New Testament, if we were to say, here is the classic example of Old Testament faith, it would be this person, Abraham, would clearly rise, and, and he's, he's talked about in Romans, he's talked about in Galatians, he's talked about in James, he's talked about here as a classic example of a faithful individual, despite the fact that we can discuss to some extent he... He had his problems. He wasn't always, I mean, you might think that the character held up as example of faith uh, in the New Testament wouldn't have slipped as often as he slips, uh, even with regard to whether, he, whether he's going to have a child, Isaac, that's uh, going to become a multitude, as God said. But uh, he is nonetheless held up as example of faith over and over again. And most of the people we've looked at so far get a verse, uh, or maybe two verses. Abel, and Enoch, and Noah. And now we come to Abraham, and Abraham is the focus of verses uh, 8 through 12, and then the focus of verses 17 through 19. And even to a large extent, the focus of what is sort of an aside that occurs in uh, verses 13 through 16, sort of sandwiched into the middle of the material about Abraham here. So as we read about Abraham, one of the things that we note about him, most of the others that are brought up, there's not a lot uh, of emphasis on the variety of ways that they showed faith. But in Abraham's case, there is. In Abraham's and later in Moses' case. So Abraham and Moses, I think, are the only characters in this chapter that receive as much attention as they received in the case of Moses from verse 22 to verse 28. In the case of Abraham, a good bit more. Um, and Abraham was the one fleshed out the most as to basically three examples of faithfulness in his life. So first of all, by faith, Abraham, when he was called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went even though he didn't know where he was going. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And so the first few verses are about Abraham's traveling. Do you remember where Abraham begins his traveling? The city that he was in, which would be in modern uh, Iraq. Ur. Ur, yeah. And Ur is not very far from the Persian Gulf. So it is the down close to the southwestern portion of Iraq that goes all the way down to the Persian Gulf uh, called Ur of the Chalde Chalde Chaldees or Ur of the Chaldeans, 
which are sort of the predecessors to the Babylonians. And actually, it's not Abraham that is first called out of Ur. It's who? His dad. Yeah, his dad, Terah, is called out of Ur. And God, in fact, tells Terah that he's going to take him to Canaan. But Terah doesn't make it. Terah lives with Abram, Sarah, and one of his sons, is it Nahor? Haran doesn't go with him, right? He was dead, he was dead at that time. So uh, Nahor goes with him. So this group goes, uh, if you can, you can look in the back of your Bible, it's probably got maps, and you'll be able to, it should be one of the very first maps that have the world of the patriarchs, and it'll basically show you the journey and he actually goes from uh, Ur, which is down next to the Persian Gulf. Why doesn't he go straight across into Israel? It'd be a lot shorter to go straight from Ur to Shechem, if that's where they're going, or to Hebron. It's a great big desert. Yeah, so uh, in maybe high school geography, we're taught about the Fertile Crescent which bends around from the Persian Gulf and goes around and down through Canaan or Israel. And so it's not very helpful to go straight across that desert. So instead you go, and he went, it seems like really the long way, because Haran, which has the same name as his son that has died, Haran that he goes to is actually in southwestern Turkey. So if you're kind of picturing modern places, he goes out of Iraq, not a long way out of Iraq, but a long way out of what we think of as Iraq, which these days we actually know where it is, unlike what Alan Jackson said back in 2011. We said, I don't know if I know where Iraq and Iran are in his country song. Uh, most of us probably didn't even know where those places were at the time. But he goes to the... Uh, uh, the northwest of Iraq and up a little bit into Turkey, and then he settles there and spends the rest of his 205 years there. Now, I've forgotten how many years he has altogether, but I presume that they were there for quite a while. And so then Abram, uh, who will eventually be Abraham, starts the rest of the journey headed down to Canaan, a place he's never been, he doesn't know anything about. Both of these journeys were, were very long journeys. They wouldn't be too bad if you had an automobile or a train, or certainly an airplane, but uh, they were pretty bad during this, this particular time. And so the point that is made by the author here is that Abraham was called by God to go somewhere God was going to give his descendants as an inheritance. Now, does Abraham get that land as an inheritance? No. 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 So he, he's a stranger and a foreigner during the time he's there, and he's subject to the famine, decides to go down into Egypt and to lie about his wife in that particular case. So uh, uh, it isn't an easy business for Abraham or for Isaac, his son, or for Jacob, his son, 
and they all are foreigners in another place. They would have, I guess, been much more comfortable in Haran or much more comfortable back in Ur, but they made this journey that God has led them on into a foreign country. And so that's the first exhibition of faith is that Abraham is asked to go to a place that he's never been. We might, I suppose, compare it to a contemporary missionary who feels called by God to go to Burma or Madagascar or wherever he's called to go to, he or she is called to go to, and uh, they've, they've never been there. But they step out by faith to make that effort. So that's the first, and one that uh, verses 13 through 16 are going to focus on. And let's, uh, let's jump down to those verses. There, it's a little bit weird how they're placed here. Uh, let's read the verses first. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on the earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of a country they had left, they would have had an opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one, and therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. It actually seems a little bit odd that this isn't put right at the end of verse 10 and right before verse 11. Is that it seems to be talking primarily about Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob who are mentioned as wandering as strangers in a land that, uh, that wasn't their own in these previous verses. And so it sort of looks like it would belong there. And I, I was actually, I was looking at a commentary that was saying the same kind of thing, saying this seems to be really weird the place that it's put. Uh, and his suggestion, which I don't know how good it is, but his suggestion was if you go from verse 8 to 12, and then jump over to where Abraham picks up again at verse 17 and carry it down through the end of the story of Isaac and Jacob, verse uh, 20, verse 21, and Joseph, verse 22, all of which are talking about their being in a place that they don't belong, and yet they're having faith that everything was going to work out the way that, uh, that the Lord had, uh, uh, had said it would. So Isaac blesses Jacob and Esau in verse 20. In verse 21, Jacob blessed Joseph's sons. That is, they see a future. When you look at those blessings, it talks about a future that uh, is going to come to them. And then Joseph when he was about to die, said, of course, y'all take my bones and bury them in Canaan where we're going. And so all of them have this faith that eventually what God's promised is going to work out. 
and they're going to inherit the land of Canaan. And that looks like who's verses 13 through 16 referring to. You might think, well, it also refers to Abel and Enoch and Noah, and possibly it does, but Enoch doesn't die. When it says all these people are still living by faith when they died, Enoch doesn't die, and uh, Abel and Noah don't aren't seeking a place. They they aren't strangers in a place, and they're seeking. And so it looks like that here in verses thirteen through sixteen, he's focusing on Abraham and his son, and his grandson, and his great grandson sons, all of those people together as a group in talking about how they look forward. And so all of them illustrate faith. And of all uh, Middle Eastern, all ancient Middle Eastern peoples, that uh, all of them lived in what we call an honor-shame culture, which ours is not. And if if we're looking for a contemporary example of the honor-shame kind of cultural system, we should ask Sam, right? Because Sam knows something about honor-shame culture from the, the Far East uh, that, that is similar. I, I think there would be a tendency, Sam, you can say whether you think this is right or not, I think there would be a tendency of um, people who come out of an honor-shame culture like many Asian cultures and African cultures and Middle Eastern cultures for them to see that in Scripture and it come alive for them in a way that it does it for most Americans. Yeah. Um, and, and this would kind of jump out to them. So it, it's interesting you mention that because um, a commentary that I've used some by a guy named De Silva, he is very much into studying honor and shame uh, he, he doesn't come from an honor-shame culture himself, but he sp- puts a lot of focus on that. And his slant on Hebrews is looking for that everywhere as he goes through. And probably if one of us, you know, if you decide this week I'm going to read Hebrews, I'm going to read it from that point of view, you would see lots of honor and glory language and lots of shame language that you probably didn't see before, that are just a part of that culture. Yesterday I had lunch with Everett Hufford, and for something like 20 years he's been working on a book about the glory of God, which is fundamentally about the honor of God. And it's about understanding the honor of God and the notion of shame as is represented in the Old and the New Testament. And he's been working on it on and off for 20 years. And he told me that he would be finished with it by the end of this year. And uh, was asking me to be one of his readers uh, for getting that ready to publish. But one of the things that he pointed out is that um, we, you know, Everett spent years of his life in Nazareth in a Middle Eastern culture working predominantly among Arabs. And he sees honor and shame everywhere. And we don't see it very much. 
typically Americans don't say it when they read the text. So uh, to, to chase a little bit more rabbit and, and perhaps embarrass uh, Sam Moore, um, <clears throat> uh, if you've seen the movie Crazy Rich Asians, it's about honor and shame versus an American that's trying to come into the family that the mother-in-law or the, yeah, would be her mother-in-law feels like, or his mother-in-law feels like the American doesn't understand. And the whole business at the end, the resolution to the movie is the American does understand. And at that point, it becomes possible for the American to marry into the family. So, little side recommendation of a movie with footnotes that say there's some foul language and other things. I, don't, I want this to be a blanket recommendation of the movie. Okay, so the, the second example of Abraham's faith begins in verse 11. And by faith, and, and here... I'm going to read what the NIV 19, uh, 2011 has, and some of you are going to say, what? My text doesn't say that. Even if you have the 1984 NIV, you're going to say, my text doesn't say that. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. What do some of you have that doesn't sound like that? Everybody have the same thing I do? You shouldn't. Hey, David, read yours. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was unable to become a father because he considered him faithful. Yeah, I think you, are you reading the NIV? Okay, but you're reading the one from 1984. I'm reading the one from 2011. I pulled out a half a dozen different translations, and there's not a strong consensus on it. I think if you're using the King James, it says, by faith Abraham was enabled to bear children. And there's underlying issues we won't get into about the translation. Ultimately, it doesn't make a lot of difference whether it's that Sarah had faith, even though she was past the childbearing age, to bear a child, or Abraham had faith, even though he was too old, and Sarah was past childbearing age, to bear a child. Uh, in either case, for both of them, you can say there were some problems with their faith, right? Sarah laughing, Abraham saying, well, how about Ishmael? Ishmael do, won't he? Well, okay, okay. Well, I'll, Sarah and Abraham getting together for him to go to Hagar and have the child that way. So ne neither one of them shows sterling faith at the beginning of this process, but both of them show faith in the process. And so from this one man which seems to perhaps suggest Abraham should be the subject of the preceding sentence. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, 
I don't like reading those kind of phrases since I'm getting closer to as good as dead. <laughs> That's true. That's true. So it wasn't his, it, it was as much him as it was Sarah in case of the barrenness. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the scar, stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. Of course, if you're familiar with the Old Testament text, you're seeing the allusions to God saying your descendants will be like the sand and the sea. Um, or earlier, where, when we read the phrase about uh, they were, uh, no, actually it's past this, when in verse uh, 13 it ends with admitting they were foreigners and strangers on the earth. There should be an echo in your mind to something that uh, Abraham says when he's in Hebron and he's trying to buy the cave for Sarah, his wife, after she died, that uh, he's a foreigner, a stranger there. The same language is sort of echoed. There are a lot of Old Testament echoes here. Jay? I just want to read it from another version. By faith, barren Sarah was able to become pregnant old woman as she was at the time because she believed the one who made a promise would do what he said. I, I like that even less. Right. That, that's how it happened that from one man's dead and shriveled loins there are now people numbering into the millions. Is this the message? Dead and shriveled loins. <laughs> the message. Okay, Eugene Peterson, you should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> he went over the top. And he waxes eloquent once in a while, but that was, that was a bit too much. So here's the second example. And the, the first example, the first example, <clears throat> going back through puberty, the first example is of uh, Abraham going to a place he didn't know. The second example is of him and Sarah believing, or one of them believing, or both of them believing, that they could have a child, something that was impossible. And so it seems like the, what living by faith means jumps up another notch in this particular case. It's one thing to go out to a place that uh, you don't know where you're going. It's something else to, uh, to be in a situation where you're being called upon to believe something that's simply not possible. And Abraham has a lot of trouble believing this possible because it takes a long time before Isaac comes along. And then the ultimate test is after verses 13 through 16 in verses 17 and following, the third example. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promise was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring we reckon." So Abraham was here put in a situation where it seems like 
he had enough trouble believing that, that God was going to bear all this multitude through this child that wasn't here and that had to come through Sarah, uh, who was beyond childbearing. And then he now has a child and God says, go offer him a sacrifice. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. Um, and it, it said, the text literally says something like, and so as a symbol or in a symbolic way, he did even receive Isaac back from the dead. And people try to figure out how to translate that to mean something like, it's almost like he got Isaac back from the dead. And of course, all of us know the way that, that story goes. And I think David points out right, rightly that that's a pinnacle of his faith. And the, the, the proof to me is the one phrase when Isaac asks his father, we have the wood and we have the fire, but where is the sacrifice? And Abraham doesn't say, oh, this or that or something else. He says, the Lord will provide. He, he finally got to the point where God doesn't need help. God has thought about it ahead of time. He knows what he's doing so that the Lord will provide. It, it, it will just work out. That's a, that's a great way of treating that particular phrase, that it's an illustration of Abraham's confidence you wonder to what you know how strong it was when he was lifting that knife, but the way that Hebrews explains it, even when he's lifting the knife, he may think, "I'm going to kill him, and God's going to raise him up again, right here on the spot," which would be something God hadn't done that we know anything about. There are no examples of this having happened in the Old Testament at that point. There will be later, the time of Elijah and the time of Elisha, and of course in the time of Jesus, but there had many examples of that up until this point. Was and, that, yes? Is the situation with Abraham and Sarah, is, is it the same situation in the New Testament with Zechariah and Elizabeth? I think it is. Yeah, but in, in their case, they would at least have precedent that God has made this happen before. Zechariah didn't buy it <laughs> at first. Um, so it's, it's probably good that uh, God didn't strike Sarah or Abraham dumb at the very first time that he told them this was going to happen because it would have lasted a lot longer than it lasted for Zechariah. Do we have any idea how many years have passed since um, in between when God promised Abraham that he would have a lot of descendants until he, they actually have Isaac? I think we do, but but it's been too long since I've... 25 years. Was it 25? Okay. So that's a long time. <laughs> that's a lot of waiting. It was longer than that. Yeah, I thought it was a long period. I didn't remember... But you have to take those little pieces out of Genesis 12 and following and put them together to come up with how long the period is. Um, well, obviously, he, deliberate, he does everything deliberately. But 
do you think part of his reasoning to wait so long was to see, to uh, increase their faith or to test their faith or was the timing just not right as in history for them to have Isaac or, I mean, that's a long time and, mm -hmm. you know, although I, you know, it's amazing to me in ways that they reacted, like with Hagar, but still, um, I mean, you can kind of understand why their faith had waned. Yeah. And do you think maybe it was that God wanted to make a point that I may wait a while, but I am going to do what I do, and I'm going to make the circumstances even harder so you'll see my power even more? And increase your yeah. The case with uh, with <coughs> Zechariah and Elizabeth, that's handled right away. And the case with Mary is handled right away. But th this one's <laughs> 25 years. That's a that's a little bit of time to wait. With everybody thinking you're crazy. <clears throat> In the meantime. So here we have these three examples of a kind of a growing faith and a growing amount of test. I want you to go somewhere you don't know where you're going. I promise I'm going to give you the land. That's a lot easier to do than I'm going to give you a child through Sarah who's 100 years old or whatever she was at the time. She's getting up there close to that. And that's easier than... Now I'm going to take that child and have you put him to death. So each thing becomes a progressive necessity for greater faith. Our faithfulness, our faith is shaped by God's faithfulness. And it's ultimately a belief and a trust and a confidence that he is faithful to what he has promised, which is all, all three of these things are about the promises that were given to Abraham and demonstration of his faith that he would inherit this land, that he would have a descendant, that through that descendant he would have descendants like the stars in the skies and uh, like the sand on the seashore throughout the world. Um, <clears throat> you know, if we... I meant to have a little more time at the end for talking about faithfulness, what faithfulness might mean for us. To some extent, what we prayed about the first of the evening is maybe what faithfulness means to some of us and some among us at this point in time as we talked about surgeries, as we talked about death, as we talked about tragedies. As we talked about a move, Bonnie and Jerry do know where they're going, by the way. <laughs> they know what their land is going to be like, and they won't feel like strangers and foreigners when they get there. So that will be, that'll be good. Yes, it is. It is. But ultimately, this vision that's given in verses 13 through 16 is important for all those things that we prayed about that ultimately we believe in a home beyond this home.
that this isn't our home, no, no matter how comfortable or uncomfortable, no matter how pleasant or unpleasant it may be, that uh, we're headed to another place where there'll be no tears and no pain, and everything will be wonderful. We look forward to the city whose builder and architect is God, as these people did as well. Next week, Tim Stafford will be teaching class, and he will be talking about Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, and probably telling you more than you'll find in the three verses, or possibly four, that, uh, that take up those three people in this particular text.